Today's reading is from selected verses in Mark 13, 1 through 13, 26 through 27, 32 through 36. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones at what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my, for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to Palm Sunday, a Sunday where we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Today, however, we're going to journey away from the beaten path to a text, as you just heard it read, that is not your typical Palm Sunday passage. Um, but before we dive in, let's uh, pause for prayer and ask the Lord to meet us. God, we come before you and ask that you would now open up your word and help us to see you in the pages of your word, that it would not be just an intellectual exercise, but God, it would feed our hungry hearts. We come now asking that you would meet us. In Christ's name, amen. Bhutan is a country best known for its innovative policy of gross national happiness. 
where sustainable development is based partly on individuals' happiness. And they have surveys that go out to people asking how happy are you to sort of feel out people's happiness and how they're doing as a nation. In a BBC article, Bhutan's Dark Secret to Happiness, Eric Weiner talks about their acceptance of death and the role that it plays in their culture. Unlike the West, they don't sequester death or try to fix it with magic pills or modern inventions. Rather, they use it to give proper perspective on life. Linda Lemming, who studied Bhutanese culture, writes in her book, A Field Guide to Happiness, the benefit of thinking about death makes me seize the moment and see things that I might not ordinarily see. And it's that last phrase that caught my attention. See things that I might not ordinarily see. You see, when you live your life with the end in view, it gives you perspective. Funerals have a way of reframing life, don't they? Every time I walk away from one of these, I I feel like my priority gets flipped on its head and I begin to understand what really is important and what is not. And there's an actual term for this phenomenon. It's called the eulogy exercise where people would think about what would be said of them at their funeral and begin to realign their life, their schedule, their priorities here in the present So they become the kind of people they want to be. In today's text, Jesus exhorts us with this one simple message to live our life with the end in view. What does this mean? It means that we hold on to the promise that he will one day return. And when he does, he will make all things new. And this requires faith, doesn't it? Faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is what takes these words that we read on the pages of Scripture and makes them a reality in our hearts so that we don't simply sign off on these theological statements, but we allow them to shape us. We make them a part of our conviction our core value. And when you make Christ's return, part of your faith, the vision of your everyday life, it will change everything. It really will. I've said this before. It's what I call the Korean barbecue effect. The certainty of Korean barbecue, when I see it on my calendar, changes everything. Not just that day, the whole week it changes my mood, what I eat or don't eat, and even how I process hunger that day. Hunger is really not a sacrifice at that point. It's really an investment because I know that I'm going to get to eat more. And even D.C. traffic at its worst becomes tolerable. And I let people in and I smile as they cut me off. All joking aside, though, how different would our lives be if this promise that Jesus holds before us became a reality? 
I wonder if your values would change. I wonder if your priorities would change. I wonder how you engage people in relationship would change. And even your attitude as you go through your day at work and with friends would change. And I would guess that would change greatly. Why? Because this promise shapes us. If you go back to the Beatitudes, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Especially those of us here in Washington, D.C. To be poor in spirit, to mourn. These aren't, they're not the language we use to describe ourselves or even our work or even our aspirations of what we want to accomplish. They seem to be so anti-Washington, but they only make sense because of the promise that Jesus gives that one day those who actually make these things a priority and learn to admit their spiritual poverty and become hungry and thirsty for God's righteousness and to advocate for peace and mercy, they will be blessed. They will inherit the earth, that they will be comforted by God. You see how the promise of things to come shapes how we live our life? And this is what Jesus wants us to get. That the way we measure success in life is not by how much we get paid or the kind of offices we hold, but it's by his words on the judgment day. Well done, my good and faithful servant. So how do we live with this vision, the promise before us? Because let's be honest, if you're like me, you forget all the time, don't you? We suffer. We all suffer from spiritual amnesia. And it takes something, something sometimes horrible, to remind us that everything's going to be okay. And Jesus says, we as his followers ought to keep this always before us. Now, before we actually dive into the text to see what it says, we want to first address the elephant in the room. Is Mark chapter 13 a failed prophecy? I'm sure those of you who were in small groups this week, you've had chance to discuss this text, and perhaps it came up. Was Jesus wrong about the future? Many skeptics have used this text to try and debunk Christian faith, but as I will show later, it does the exact opposite. In his book, The Christian Delusion, John Loftus argues that Jesus was a failed Messiah at best because he predicted the end to be imminent. Now, 2,000 years later, we seem to be doing just fine. What happened? And he points to verse 30, where Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. So how are we to understand Mark chapter 13? You see, the confusion lies in the fact that Jesus seamlessly weaves in and out of a two-tier prophecy separated by the phrases, these things and those days. Okay, these things and those days. These things refer to the immediate events leading up to the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem, whereas those days refer to the second coming of Christ in the unknown future. Follow along with me. 
The chapter begins with one of the disciples, most likely Judas, because Mark tends to leave his name out in his gospel, makes a throwaway comment. He says, what wonderful stones and what wonderful building. Jesus replies, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And this created some curiosity. So, Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Notice, their question is about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, not the return of Christ. So Jesus answers their question. Starting with verse 5 all the way to verse 18, Jesus tells them all the events that must first take place prior to the destruction of the temple. But starting with verse 19 all the way to verse 27, Jesus, seeing the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as a paradigm for a great, greater judgment to come, talks about the events leading up to his return. We know this because of the phrase, for in those days. This is a common Old Testament apocalyptic verbal formula. That's a mouthful. It's another way of saying, listen up because I'm about to talk about something distant. And he leads us there, talking about all the things that will happen then. And later in verse 28, Jesus comes back then with the parable of the fig tree to talk about these things that must happen before the destruction of the temple. And if you go back line by line, prophecy by prophecy, and read through what Jesus had said concerning these things, they were all accomplished before 70 AD. And there's a question of the sign. What sign is Jesus referring to here? The sign is really pointing to the abomination that causes desolation in verse 14. Now, how was this fulfilled, and who is it that Jesus is talking about? Few years prior to the destruction of the temple, there was an inter-Jewish conflict where Jewish zealots killed a bunch of other fellow Jews, and they filled the temple with their dead bodies. And Jesus points to that as the abomination that causes desolation because immediately after that, the Romans come in to put out the conflict. In the fall of 70 AD, we have it before us in all the history books. Titus, the Roman general, comes and destroys Jerusalem. And according to Eusebius, a church historian, it was at this point during the inter-Jewish conflict that many Jews, just as Jesus said, fled to Pella on the other side of Jordan. But Mark chapter 13 supports Christian faith in other ways. Let me highlight two things real quickly and we'll get into the text. First is Jesus' ignorance. Jesus' ignorance. If you want to start a religion and claim that Jesus is not just a great rabbi, but he's in fact a God-man who performs all kinds of miracles, casts out demons, and even raises the dead, why would you include this little piece about Jesus not knowing the hour or the day of his return. 
you're shooting yourself, right, on your foot before the race. It's self-defeating. Yet here, in all the Gospels, the writers tell us that Jesus really didn't know. Second is the Gospels' silence. We know that in the fall of, uh, fall of 70 A.D., that Titus came and destroyed the temple and Jerusalem fell. But when you read through all the Gospels, you read no mentioning of this. Why? Because when the Gospel writers were writing their Gospels, this event had not yet happened. I mean, how else to prove Jesus as something more than a great teacher than to point to this one particular prophecy that was fulfilled? But the Gospels are silent. Why? Because it hasn't happened yet. I think we spent enough time here, so let's get to the text and ask the question, how do we live with the end in view and not despair? There are two things. As we consider the text and the promise that God gives that one day he will return to make all things new, we see two things about Christ that keeps us hoping in the present. First, he is the sovereign king. He is a sovereign king. The most compelling case for Jesus' sovereignty actually comes from verse 26 in this phrase, and you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds. You will see the Son of Man coming in clouds. This picture of the Son of Man, which is a divine title from the book of Daniel, coming in clouds has a rich Old Testament connection. And most of the original audience would have made that connection immediately and understood that the gospel authors are saying something grand about Jesus and who he is. The New Testament scholar James Edwards, he writes this. He says, in the Old Testament, cloud symbolized the power and the presence of God. That in the Old Testament, cloud symbolized the power and the presence of God. For example, when God delivered Israel from Egypt, the ten plagues, the splitting of the Red Sea, sustaining their life with manna for 40 years, his presence was like a pillar of cloud by day, depicting his radiant glory and power to sustain his people. And later when Moses goes into the tabernacle to meet with God face to face, it says the cloud descended upon it, depicting the intimacy that we have with God. You see what Mark is saying here? By saying that Jesus will one day return in clouds, he is saying that Jesus is this divine God who was with his people, that he is the one who delivers us from our bondage of sin, and he's the one who's going to carry us, sustain our faith until we make it to the promised land. And in the meantime, he's going to provide us with everything we need, life and godliness, so that we don't simply crawl to the finish line, but we make it there. And here's a hope for us, that we, when Jesus comes, when he returns, that it's not just going to be paradise on earth, 
but the intimacy that was lost with God would be restored once again. That we would know and experience firsthand what it's like to be fully known, fully loved, and also to love him in that way. And this is the hope that Jesus holds before us, that he is a sovereign king who has promised to do this, and he will make good on his promise. It's no wonder then that Jesus assures us that calamities of both natural and supernatural would not impede the advancement of the gospel or even the return of Christ. Rather, time and time again, as we survey human history, persecution has only, has only purified and matured the church. In the first century, as we read through the book of Acts, we see that persecution served as a catalyst for believers to take this gospel message to the ends of the earth. And we know about the church in China that has thrived, in fact, exploded despite persecution. And I read in different places of the church in North Korea that has remained steadfast to their faith despite unbelievable persecution even now. And how even that church is so mission-minded that one day, if they were ever to be liberated, that they're going to take the gospel to South Korea. And we read about the staggering numbers of conversions in the Middle East. And I know it's hard to quantify these things, but I've, re I've read reports that say that some, maybe 16 million Muslims convert to Christian faith every year. I don't know if that's true or not. But we know that Jesus meets with them in their dreams. And we as a church should not at all be surprised by this. Remember Jesus' words. On this rock, I will build my church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Not even the gates of hell. The gates are the last line of defense. And even then, the gospel will triumph. And I love how the book of Acts ends. In chapter 28, verse 31, Luke reminds us of this very promise. He says, Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You see what Luke is doing? Despite Paul's imprisonment, the gospel is not bound. It is advancing to the ends of the earth. Why? Because this is a project that Jesus has begun and he's going to finish. And when he returns and we behold him in the clouds, we will know once and for all what's always been true, that he is close and near to us, and he uses all of his resources and strength and power to sustain our faith. So even as we think about this idea of keeping before us this promise of his return, I want you to be encouraged that we can live, in, we can live like this because he's going to see it happen in our life. He's going to do this. He's going to remind us. And he's going to pour into us. He's going to be, bring people who will pray for us and with us. 
He's going to plug us into a community where we can be encouraged through worship services like this. He's going to do it. And I hope, even as we worship together, that you would look around this room and see all the ways that God has already done that for you. Second picture that we see of Jesus is his mercy, the merciful king. In speaking of the great tribulation to come in the unknown future, Jesus says in verse 20, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. I love this verse because in the midst of all the crazy things that go on, there is this hope. Hope that God knows us better than ourselves. That he treats us with such gentleness. That he does not despise us for our weakness, but he comes to almost shelter us, if you will, by limiting the amount of suffering. The Bible says a bruised reed he would not break, and a faintly burning wick he would not quench. And that's what we come to celebrate on this Palm Sunday, that he comes riding into Jerusalem, declaring God's peace. And he wins our hearts not by force, but by love, by humility, as he washes our feet and goes to the cross to become sin for us. This is our God. And this is how he comes into our hearts. You see, as you think about what, what the Palm Sunday represents, you may be asking how. How is it that God could shower us with mercy after mercy when we are, in one sense, how deserving sinners. This passage talks about the greater judgment to come in a distant future. But there was another judgment day, not too long after Jesus spoke these words. And on that day, the sun grew dark. The sky, in fact, grew dark. And God poured his wrath upon his son. And because of that, we can come now freely, without fear, without shame, without guilt, knowing that he is pleased with us. Not because of our track record, not because of our spiritual report card, but simply by our faith in the one who took our place. And even though darkness and chaos sought to destroy the Son of God, he overcame it. He overcame it with light and life. I love how the Easter Sunday begins. It says, with a dawn, there was an earthquake, and Jesus, this resurrected, glorious God, shone like a lightning. And here, I think the gospel authors intentionally inserts this piece of information to remind us that our hope cannot be put to death. That our hope of things to come has been secured by Christ, his death, and his resurrection. And because of his faithfulness till the very end, we too can be hopeful in knowing 
that we're going to make it, that we're going to make it. And how we need to hear these words afresh in this election year as we react to various news and outcomes. Jesus says to us, don't worry. These things have to happen first, but everything is under control. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you on this day and we give you thanks for your grace for us. We thank you, God, that you are sovereign and merciful God who has secured our end. And we look ahead now to a glorious end that awaits us. And I pray, Jesus, that that vision would change and shape who we are and what we do, that we would be busy in engaging ourselves with the things that you have called us to, to love you, to love others, and to serve this city well. In Christ's name, amen.